You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Glad to be able to be here with you this morning to worship. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'm Ant. I get to serve as pastor here at Midtown Two Notch. Very glad you're worshiping, especially if you're a visitor here with us today. Thank you for uh, just taking the time to spend this Sunday morning with us again to worship and get into the word together today. We want to turn to Ephesians chapter six. If you have your Bibles uh, with you, hopefully if you don't have one, we were able to put one near you uh, in the seats. Feel free to grab that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to take it home with you. Uh, we want everyone to be able to have a Bible. So again, if you don't own one, please Take that one with you. Again, Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to be starting at verse 10. And then we'll be starting at verse 10. We're in our warrior series. We're a little over halfway through uh, our warrior series. I hope it's been as much of a blessing to you as it has been uh, to me as we've been looking at what it means to fight the good fight of faith. To fight the good fight of faith. It's good to be back. I feel like I've been out for a minute. Uh, I have been a few other places uh, preaching. I took um, obviously my birthday weekend off, and then I, I preached at a couple other places. I want to make sure, though, I explain why you're turning to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to make sure that I explain one of the reasons I find it important to do that. I believe that three out of the last four weeks, I, was, I did not preach here. I find it to be important for a couple reasons. A, I believe in many churches, especially when there's one pastor, the, the voice of the pastor gets elevated to a standard that's not healthy, oftentimes. Oftentimes, there, there, there's this even idolizing of the pastor, and, and there's this belief that I, I need to receive a word from God from this specific person, from this specific man. And one of the things that I want to intentionally push back against is, is an overemphasis of the voice or discipleship from one specific person. So because in the kingdom of God, God has trained up many people who are able to preach his word and are anointed to do so, we want to allow them to come bless us as well. So that's one of the things that we find to be that I find to be very uh, important. It's something I want to continue to do from time to time. So I, I honestly believe that me taking some weeks off is good for me and good for you. I believe it's good for our entire congregation when that is the case. I'm obviously, I'm not a perfect preacher. Every man is limited. Every man has mistakes. I still have a lot of learning and growing to do. So we find that to be very, very important. That said, I'm excited to be back. So let's go ahead and get into Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to start at verse 10. Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesian church. Chapter 6, we're in the last chapter of the book. And right before he concludes it, he wants to encourage them to put on the whole armor of God. He wants to encourage them to put on the whole armor of God. Before he brings this letter to, to a close, he wants them to know what that means and what that looks like. He starts by letting them know where their strength comes from. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power. Sorry, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I think I just went King James out of nowhere. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We find our strength to fight in him. We find our strength to fight in him. Now, depending on what Christian tradition you may be coming from, there's some Christian traditions that tend to focus on how weak we are independently of God. It's an attempt to, to encourage humility in us that we would rely wholly on God. And then there are some Christian traditions who, who emphasize much more how strong we are in Christ, that we actually have more strength in him than we know. The truth is the Bible teaches that both are true, that, that we are weak in and of ourselves, but in him 
we have more strength often than we understand. He's saying that we are so united with Christ, so one with him, that when we walk in faith, that we actually walk in his strength, that his strength becomes our strength. Just like as believers, his his righteousness becomes our righteousness, his victory becomes our victory. Paul is saying that his strength also becomes our strength when we walk in faith in him. Now, he's not saying that we can do everything that God can do, but he is saying that as we walk in faith in him, he provides for us the strength that we need to stand against the schemes of the enemy. And Paul encourages us to have that mindset in the next verse, verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy. So before we get into the the specific piece of armor that I want to talk about today, I want to make sure that we understand what the armor is for. Paul says it is strong enough to allow us to stand against the schemes of the enemy. That's, That's the purpose of the armor, that we may be able to stand specifically against the schemes of the enemy. There's a preacher that I like to listen to. His name is H.B. Charles Jr. He has a quote that I love about this topic. He says, the power of the devil is trickery, not might. It's deception, not force. There are satanic strategies at work to undermine and overthrow the believer's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil works through evil schemes to attack your faith. We have to understand our enemy if we don't want to be defeated or give our power over ourselves over to him. Continue on verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. He says that we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. He's pointing out if you sinned, it's not because your coworker made you sin. It's not because your family member or your life group member or someone else in the church, or it's not because the, the situations in your life that you found yourself in, they didn't make you sin. The person that made you angry didn't cause you to operate outside of God's love towards them. That, that's not what happened. What happened is the enemy and his schemes might have used those things to try to distract or destroy your faith, but ultimately you succumbed to those schemes because you weren't wearing the full armor of God. That no one, no, no one made you lust after them. That doesn't happen. There are cosmic powers. Satan and his kingdom schemes against us and seeks to use the different situations and circumstances in our lives to compromise our faith. And we are only able to stand against them if we wear the full armor of God. Any amount of sin that we have committed is because we weren't wearing the armor of God as he has provided for us. Our circumstances aren't the reasons for our lack of spiritual health or maturity. No one else or nothing in our life is responsible for our lack of gratitude towards God or our discontentment in life. Satan and his spiritual kingdom scheme against us, and we will fall instead of stand if we don't wear the full armor of God. Continue on verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And as shoes for feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
And here's what we'll focus on today. And take the helmet of salvation. And take the helmet of salvation. Paul is imprisoned at the time that he writes this letter to Ephesus. It's very likely that he's actually chained to a Roman soldier at this time while he is writing this letter. It's likely that he is looking at the armor that this soldier has on and he's comparing it to how we should believe and how we should follow Christ. And so he looks at the helmet on this soldier that he is likely chained to and he says that we are to take the helmet of salvation. The fact that Paul includes this essential piece of armor likely tells us that what he's saying is if we're going to be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy, we need to have our minds readily on the salvation that we have received from God. That to take up the helmet of salvation is a way to allow us to stand firm against the schemes of the enemy. So we need to dive in. What, what might Paul mean when he's talking about taking the helmet of salvation? There are three, way, three ways that I want to get into today that we can wear or take the helmet of salvation, and they'll govern the rest of our time that we have together. The first way that we take the helmet of salvation is to understand the nature of our salvation. Understand the nature of our salvation. There are some that think that they are saved because they grew up in a Christian home. Their parents were always involved in the church. They were raised on, on principles found in the Bible, so they think that they're Christians because their family is Christian. But when the Bible talks about what it is to be a follower of Jesus, don't say nothing about your mama or your daddy, your auntie and them, or any of those people that you associate yourself with. It talks about us knowing God. I like how Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10 talks about it. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. It doesn't bring up anything about the, the type of, of home or environment that we were raised in. There are some who think that we're saved because of how many worship services like this one that we have attended, but being in a worship service like this one doesn't make you a Christian no more than sitting in the garage makes you a car. Some of us, we believe that because we come and worship together that that makes us saved. Some of us believe that we are saved because we try hard to be a good Christian. We try to make our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, try to make our rights outweigh our wrongs so that God will accept us one day. But that's not how the Bible talks about us being saved either. Romans chapter 3, I'll read 20 through 24. We're going to be bouncing around between a lot of scripture today. But in Romans 3, 20, it says, for by... Works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That word to be justified means to be declared righteous. Paul is, is making the point throughout this whole chapter that those who are justified are the ones who are saved. This shows us that our good works don't earn us salvation. That there is no amount of doing enough good things to cause God to accept us. That's not how this works. God, if that were the case, then we wouldn't need saving. We would be able to save ourselves. This is not what the Bible teaches. God goes on, I mean, Paul goes on to explain salvation, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness 
to it. There's, there's a new way to be justified, to find righteousness that's apart from our own ability to obey the law, to obey all of God's commands. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. It says if we have faith in Jesus, we truly believe in him, and I'll explain that a little bit more later, but if we truly have faith in him, then we receive his righteousness. Continue on in verse 22, for there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, though the redemption that is in Christ, sorry, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We receive his salvation, his redemption as a gift. A gift is not something that you receive because you've done a good enough job. A gift is not something that you receive because your performance level was high enough. That's not a gift. That's a wage, right? That's that's a payment. A payment is something that you get when you've you've earned it, when you've worked hard enough, when you've done enough good things to get there. But the salvation of God is given to those as a gift. A gift is something you receive because you are loved. A wage is something you receive because you earned it. And Paul is saying that the salvation of our God, the redemption that we find in him, is a gift. Something that we receive. We couldn't earn it. All you have to do is receive it. Many believe that they're saved because they prayed a prayer and asked Jesus to come into their heart. But such a prayer is not in the Bible. We don't find that in the scripture. It is through faith in him that we are saved. Maybe I I came forward during an altar call and I prayed a prayer, so that's the reason that I am saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches. We often have a shallow understanding of what it truly means also to have faith in God. So even if when we understand that we are saved by faith, we often have a very shallow grasp on what it actually means to have faith in God. Does it simply mean that I I come to a cognitive, mental understanding of what the Bible says? Or is it something deeper than that? James chapter 2 verse 19 says, If you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You, you have come to a mental understanding. You, you, you've come to comprehend that God exists, that there's really only one God, and he sent his son to die on the cross. The demons know that, and, they, and, they ter- and they're, terri- they're terrified of him. They fear him. They understand that. The point that James is making is that that can't be all there is to actually being saved because the kingdom of darkness knows that. He's saying that there is more to faith than just coming to a a mental comprehension or understanding of God. Biblical faith is life-changing. It means that you not only believe that he's he's real, but you believe that he's trustworthy. You believe that his words are true, which means that those that place faith in Jesus believe that he is worthy of worship. Those that place faith in Jesus believe that he is more satisfying and grants more joy than anything else. Those who have truly placed faith in Jesus believe, as Jesus said, that he is the bread of life, that he is worth sacrificing all other things that we might have him. This is what true faith is. It's not just faith in his existence. It's faith in his promises and what he says to be true about himself as well. If we are to wear the helmet of salvation, we need to understand the nature of salvation which means we need to not only know what saving faith is, we need to also know what it means to be saved. So James has shown us that saving faith is more than just coming to a mental comprehension of something. It's something much deeper than that. But I also want to make sure we understand what it means to be saved. 
church, type of church I grew up in, we use the word saved all the time. People who are saved, that's, I, I kind of understood it as a synonym for the word Christian, right? If you're saved, then you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus. But it was helpful for me to think through what does the word saved actually mean? So I looked it up in, in the Greek. It means to deliver or protect, to heal, to preserve, to make whole. So if we are saved and we are delivered, we are protected, we, are, we have been healed, we've been preserved, we've been made whole. But what have we been delivered or protected from? What have we been healed from? The angel of the Lord comes to, to Joseph, who, who married Jesus' mother Mary, and explains to him what Jesus came to do, what he was all about, and answers, he answers this question of what are we saved from? Matthew 1, 21. It says, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us from our sins. Sin is what we are saved from. The word save isn't just a word that's supposed to be synonymous with the word Christian. It's supposed to help us to think through and remember the fact that we have been saved from something. That there is something that has happened that Jesus has come to save us from. If we were to take on the helmet of salvation, we need to understand what it means that we need to be saved from sin. I want to run through a few things that we are saved from. We're saved from spiritual death. We're saved from separation from God. We're saved from guilt and condemnation. We're saved from our shame as he has taken all of our sin and shame upon himself. We are saved from the enslaving nature of sin. We're, we're, we will eventually be saved from all suffering and all death as well. There's many things that we are saved from when we talk about being saved from sin. But I want to try to give us three basic categories. When you think through what are we saved from, when we think through our salvation, three primary categories. We're saved from, first, the penalty of sin. That Jesus came, he died in our place, he took our sin upon himself, he was condemned, though we deserve to be condemned, he took the sins of the world upon himself, and thus we are saved from the penalty of our sin if we have truly placed faith in him. We don't have to fear condemnation anymore. We're also saved from the power of sin. Jesus says that everyone who sins is enslaved to sin. That sin controls us. It, it tells us what to do. It, it leads us towards our own destruction. The good news is that God didn't just forgive us from the sins that we committed, but he has also freed us from the power that sin has over us. I love what Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, what they say. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin talking about all of us, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says that followers of Jesus were enslaved to sin, but we have a new master now. He says that we were enslaved. We were unable to, to rid ourselves of the power of sin. We were unable to say no to sin. But if we truly have placed faith in Jesus, that he has overpowered and overthrown the kingdom that we were in, and now we are free and now bound to live in righteousness. That sin no longer has power over us. That's good news. Because if you're like me, you have things in your life that maybe you've been hopeless about ever growing out of. 
that you've been hopeless about ever seeing any type of spiritual maturity in this specific area in your life. But Paul is saying that we've been set free from the power of sin, that we've been saved from slavery to sin. This is important because if you believe you've been saved from the penalty of sin, but don't understand that you've also been saved from the power of sin, you will live, spiritually speaking, with a victim's mentality. You will live with a victim's mentality. You will begin to believe that there's nothing actually that you can do, that this sin is just such a huge problem that's come on you, and there's really nothing that you can do about it to try to grow in specific areas in your life, and you'll just take it as a victim instead of fighting it like a warrior. And you will receive and you will accept and embrace the mentality of a victim. Be quick to think, woe is me. My sin is so difficult and slow to think. I know that God is at work in me and transforming me and conforming me more and more into his image. We'll blame our sin on the different circumstances in our lives. We will focus more on how hard it is to fight against our sin. And we will want to just give up instead of fighting against it. If we don't know we've been saved from the power of sin, why continue to fight? Why continue to press on? If we live with this victim mentality, we might begin to see God's forgiveness and grace as a license to sin. Because we understand that we've been saved from the guilt of sin, but if we don't understand we've been saved from the power that sin has over us, then we might as well just throw our hands up, say our prayers at night, ask God for forgiveness, and keep it moving. But he has saved us from the power of sin, that sin is not your master anymore. It does not run you. It does not rule you. That we might be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, as Paul says. So he saves us from the penalty of sin. He saves us from the power of sin. And he also, on that glorious day, will come back and save us from the presence and effects of sin forever. That he will return for his people and we will never know sin again. Not only is he taking away our guilt so that we don't live with shame, so that we don't live with the fear of condemnation, not only has he freed us from the, from the slavery to sin, but our, our king is going to crack the skies with his war clothes on. And all of his enemies, all of his enemies that have tortured his people, death, sin, suffering, grief, mourning, sickness, oppression, all of it, he's going to do away with it. I love the way Romans chapter 20 talks about it. It says that death itself is going to be thrown in the lake of fire. That he is going to kill death itself for his people. That he is coming back to rid us of all the pains that sin has caused us. In Revelation 21, it says that he will wipe all tears away from our eyes. That when he comes back and ultimately completes the salvation of his people, you will have cried your last tear. And some of us have cried a lot of tears. And some of us have a lot of pain and some of us have been through a lot of mourning and many of us are in a stage of grief right now. I want to encourage you with the salvation of our God to let you know that the days of your grief are numbered. The days of your sickness are numbered. The days of your pain, the days of dealing with death are numbered for he will throw death into the lake of fire and we'll never see it again. And the people of God will be saved from sin. That what was promised to Joseph, Jesus' father, will come true. That he will save us from sin. That this sin that we experience on a daily basis, it does not have the final say. It will not have the last laugh. But we will watch it fade away into the distance forever. See, wearing the helmet of salvation gives us the strength that we need to stand firm. 
to understand that this sin will not have victory, then as overwhelmed as we feel in this life, that one day we will go to be with him and only know peace and joy forever. So to wear the helmet of salvation, we need to understand the nature of our salvation. We also need to believe in the promises of our salvation. We need to believe in the promises of our salvation. If we're truly, truly to take the helmet of salvation, it's not enough for me to just intellectually understand that God has taken my sin away. Let me, let me try to give you an example of, of what I mean. I have preached for years, probably going on a decade now, on the forgiveness that we find in Christ Jesus. I can explain it. I've explained it in multiple ways using various scriptures that he has washed us clean, that he has taken my sin away from me. I know verses about it. And yet still, at the same time, in times when I'm in a, a, a disagreement or some type of discussion with my wife, I am very slow to admit that I'm wrong because of the shame I feel when I do so. I have an understanding of the nature of salvation in that my sins have been taken away from me, but my actions reveal that I don't believe it deep down in my soul as I should. That I've comprehended it enough to be able to articulate it, but it hasn't worked its way deep down into my belief system. I see this when I, when I sin, when I mess up and I struggle with shame, and it's like I feel like I can't even go to God in the way that I desire to because I feel like he's so disappointed with me or angry with me, and it just feels like I can't go to him as I desire to. This reveals that I, I've comprehended, but I haven't truly believed on the deepest of levels, and my actions reveal that though I've intellectually come to comprehend my salvation, I'm not believing it as deeply as I should. I know verses like, this is one of my favorite verses, Psalm 103, verse 12, which says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. I know of these verses, and I need to continue to fight to believe in the promises of our salvation. Our salvation promises that our, that our guilt has been removed from us if we are truly in him. It's one thing to intellectually understand it. It's another thing to believe it deeply. I'll try to give another example. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the, for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. It's one thing to be able to read that scripture and understand that God's love, that he's always for us and that he is sovereign and that he is in control. He's working everything out for the good of his people. It's a whole other thing to be able to find peace and rest in God when your life isn't going the way you thought it would go. When the current situation in your life, you're looking at it and you don't know how you're going to get past it. It's one thing to understand what that verse means. It's another thing to believe it enough to find peace and comfort, supernatural peace in God because you trust in him and know that he is for your good. Those are two different things. We must believe in the promises of our salvation. Our salvation promises us that our God is good. That he's worked out every detail. He worked out every detail so that you will come to know him and be where you are right now. He's been working this out since before he created the world. It's one thing to understand that, to comprehend that. It's another thing to believe that deeply. It's one thing to be able to comprehend 
that God cares so much about our suffering and our pain that he left the throne of heaven, that he left paradise, came and stepped into our pain, experienced the pains and the hurts and the grief that we experienced so that he could free us from it and take us away from it. It's one thing to understand that, but, or to, to comprehend that. It's a different thing to believe that he is near and that he loves us on our worst days when the enemy is whispering to us that God has forsaken us, that God doesn't see or God doesn't care that God isn't present, that God is distant. See, it's one thing to know that no, our God isn't distant. He stepped down. He came to us. And then when he ascended to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit to empower us for the fight that he has called us to. It's one thing to comprehend that. It's another thing to believe the promise of our salvation so deeply that we find comfort in him in times of suffering versus believing that he is distant from us in times of suffering. Our salvation promises us that he loves us enough to be with us even in our worst of times. I love what 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. It's one thing to intellectually comprehend the fact that God has made us a holy people that he has set us apart, that he has cleaned us, that he has called us his, his saints and set us apart for his purposes. It's a whole other thing to, to believe that and live in that when the moment of temptation comes, when we're tempted to not live like we are set apart for his purpose. It's one thing to understand it and comprehend that it. It's another thing to believe it and thus put off the old self and put on the new self, as Paul writes in Colossians chapter 3, I'll read verses 8 through 10. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of his creator. See, it's one thing to, to understand, to comprehend that he has made us new. It's another thing to day by day put on the new self and thus take off the old self that he has saved us from. If we're going to wear and take the helmet of salvation, we need to understand the nature of our salvation. We need to believe the promises of our salvation. And we need to rejoice in the goodness of our salvation. We need to rejoice in the goodness of our salvation. Over and over again, rejoice is given as a command in the Bible. Not a suggestion, not a recommendation, as a command in the Bible. Not as something that is optional for us as believers to do when we feel like it or when we think we want to do it. It is given as a command that is for our good in the word of God. Psalm chapter 32, verse 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is referring to the people of God, those who have, been, who have received his salvation. He's commanding them to rejoice in the Lord. This is a part of taking the helmet of salvation. In Psalm 33, verse 1, the very next chapter, he says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. These are commands. And we see the same thing in the New Testament as well. If you're familiar with the book of Philippians, Paul is writing about joy over and over and over again. And in Philippians 4, verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. As I said earlier, as we opened our service together, 
Rejoicing can be an expression of our joy to the Lord, or it can be a pursuit of our joy in the Lord. It can express the joy we already feel, or it can be an intentional decision to pursue joy in him. But here's the thing. There's no way that we can actually understand the nature of our salvation and fully believe the promises of our salvation without their producing rejoicing in us. Does that make sense what I'm saying? There's, there's no way to actually fully understand, to fully believe in all the promises that we receive in our salvation and not rejoice in the Lord. There is nothing that mankind has received that is better than salvation from God. There's nothing that you've ever experienced more worthy of rejoicing in than the salvation that we find in our God. So if you have truly believed it, if you have truly understood it, you will rejoice. That there's no way that we have truly taken the helmet of salvation if we don't consistently practice rejoicing in the Lord. I want to zoom in on what David says about joy and salvation in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a psalm of repentance from David. If you're familiar with David's life, he had just sinned and then that, that caused some problems. And so he tried to sin again to cover that up. And then he sinned again to try to cover that sin up. And now it's caused all of these problems. So he goes before the Lord broken and he writes this psalm, Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance to God. I want to pay very close attention to the request that he makes to the Lord. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Then he goes into what he will do as a result of that. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. David asked God to restore to me the joy of my salvation. I don't, I don't know if you've been there. I don't know if you're in a place now where you're like, yeah, my, I used to be so excited about my salvation in the Lord. I used to rejoice and there used to be this joy that I had, but now I don't have that. David is saying, God, restore that to me. And when that happens, when you allow me to experience that joy again in my salvation, I will join you in your mission and tell everyone else about the salvation that I now currently get to enjoy. That actually following God, our, our, our energy that we have to pursue following God oftentimes is fueled by the joy that we have in the fact that he has saved us. I don't know if you're in a place where there's been, you've heard this so many times. You've heard about his grace. You've heard about his mercy. You've heard about his love. You heard that he's there. You heard that he died for us and he rose from the grave. Has it become just cold and dry to you? Has it, has it gotten to a place now where you've heard it so many times that it almost doesn't even mean anything to you? It doesn't stir up any joy in your heart or any love or any type of, of peace. It doesn't, it doesn't produce any rejoicing in you or, or is it still sweet? Is it still good? Is it still powerful? Is it still impactful that he came and died and was raised from the grave? If you're apathetic in your walk with Christ today, if you're struggling to find motivation to fight sin, if you don't have the passion and zeal to be about his business, be about his mission, you got to ask yourself, have you lost joy in his salvation? Have you lost joy in the fact that he has saved you? Does it still bless your soul to remember what God has done for you? Some of us, were finding it very difficult and it feels impossible for us to continue to make the sacrifices that God has called us to make over and over again. We feel like he's asking too much. And part of the reason for that is because we're not finding, we're not finding joy in our relationship with him. 
So we feel like he's causing us to give up all the things that we really enjoy, and we don't feel like we're receiving joy from him, so it feels like he's asking too much. I want us to understand how important it is that we rejoice in the Lord, because if you are not finding joy in the Lord, you will begin to believe that God is taking more from you than he is actually giving you. You'll begin to believe that God is actually killing your joy and ridding you of your joy than being the source of your joy. Rejoicing in the Lord is essential. It's an essential part of taking on the helmet of salvation. So many of us, were exhausted because we feel like we're giving up so many things that give us joy and God has not given us the fulfillment that we want in return. If that's you, I just want to ask you to make Psalm 51 verse 12 your prayer. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. God, restore to me, supernaturally give me joy in you again. The joy that I felt when I first really understood what grace really was. When I first really grasped that you love me in spite of all the things that I have done against you, that you continue to pursue me. The first time you understood that death can't even hold him down, and if I am with him and in him, that death won't hold me down either. When you remember that, that he is constantly in pursuit of you, even when you turn away from him, God, restore in us the joy of our salvation. That this just wouldn't be something that we intellectually understand like we're reading a textbook, but that this will be a reality that pierces into our souls that we believe, that we rejoice in, that is the anchor for our souls. God, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Restore it to us, God. For all of us who have seemingly lost it, where it just feels dry, it just feels like it's mundane, we're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Give us a new joy in you, God. One of the things that we do to try to consistently help us to remember our salvation and take the helmet of salvation is we partake in communion every week. It's a reminder of what he has done. It's a reminder that he died for us, that he shed his blood, that we might know him, that we might be saved. In a minute, I'll pray for us. We'll open up the, the communion table. We want to do this in remembrance of him as a way of taking the helmet of salvation today, that we might understand his salvation, believe in his promises, and also rejoice in his salvation. Father, would you make that real for us today? Father, that, that theology and knowledge about you wouldn't be something that, that is distant from, from you, who we, who we love and have relationship with. Father, would you restore joy in us? And even as we sing in just a few moments here together, would you produce joy in us? Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Help us to be a people that takes the helmet of salvation and that goes to war, standing firm against the schemes of the enemy because of the helmet of salvation that you have given us. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.